Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Lord God, we acknowledge that all you have done uh, represents this lavish outpouring of your love upon us. And we acknowledge that we stand with thimbles under a waterfall in terms of catching the the generosity and the grace that is poured out. And maybe our prayer tonight then is that you'd give us bigger thimbles, but you'd give us a greater sense of all that you have done for us in Christ so that we may more richly appreciate uh, what that lavish wealth means and... uh, what it has achieved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Not long ago, uh, I went with Natalie, my wife, to a lecture. It was a clergy uh, uh, lecture, mostly. Those spouses had been invited. We walked in, and most of the seats at the back and in the middle had been filled. The front row was practically empty. So I went to sit on the front row. But then there was a hissing sound from behind me. Natalie had identified two seats much further back, and so I was obedient and went and sat with her. What would Paul want us to do with the letter to the Ephesians as we have it? Do turn to it if you've closed it after our reading, page 1173. Now, I I know I tease the evening congregation about this, but I am quite serious about this. I think Paul would be very happy if the back rows all moved forward. In fact, he'd be happiest of all if every row, except the front row, was entirely abolished and everyone sat on one long front row. See, when I was with Natalie, I was in my own comfort zone. It was the bishop's house, there was a lecturer, I knew the lecturer personally... It was there were lots of clergy around, and heaven help me, I'm comfortable with that. I would have been happy at the front. Natalie wasn't. She didn't know all these people. Nearly everyone else had a dog collar on. She was happier fading into the background. But there would be times when it would have been reversed. If it had been a lecture on the impact of retroviral drugs on hepatitis B and C, she'd have been exactly in her comfort zone, whereas I wouldn't have gone anywhere near the front row. Everyone knows that where you sit matters. And it's not just at church. Imagine you've got on an empty bus and you sat on a seat, the usual kind, for two. And imagine that the next person on the bus walks past all the empty seats and sits down beside you. It would be weird, especially if they smiled at you. (laughs) I had a friend in, in Brussels Uh, a very large Ghanaian lady, Um, and uh, she would, uh, on the trams, and there's not a lot of space on the tram, but she occupied most of the space, when she saw someone sitting on the window side, she would immediately sit next to them and uh, talk, and uh, if they spoke French, she'd speak French, if they spoke English, she'd she'd turn to them and say, do you know Jesus? (laughs) And I would always have said yes, whether I did or not, frankly. If we sit towards the back of an event, it's perhaps a signal that we arrived late 
or that we don't feel entirely comfortable at the front. Perhaps we'll be picked on. Or think back to your school days. Perhaps there'll be a question and you'll be expected to know the answer. Perhaps it just looks a bit too keen. And perhaps we don't think we deserve to be at the front. Perhaps what goes on is outside our own comfort zone. And Paul wants everyone at the front. Seriously. Ephesians isn't an early letter. It reflects mature reflection on Paul's part. He's in prison by this point in his life. And there are references to his chains that come through the letter. And in the church in Ephesus, and to some extent in, it was part of a valley, the Lycus Valley in Turkey. Uh, to some extent this is true of others of the churches. What it feels like is that the Gentiles, the non-Jews, at one level seem to have the best of it. They are on their way now because they've freed themselves from constraint of the Jewish law, and they're on their way to separating from the Jewish foundation. But it's all a little uneasy. In part, they're feeling proud. We don't need the Jews. But in part, they're feeling insecure. We, without the Jews, we don't know where all this stuff that we believe comes from. And Paul writes to Ephesus and to other churches in the area a letter intended absolutely and fundamentally to destroy any sense that there are first-class and second-class believers. Any sense that there's a front row and a back row. Wouldn't you think it was weird to come into church tonight to discover that we'd all decided quietly to play a game on you and actually every other single person was sitting in a front row? It would seem weird, but Paul wants them to do exactly that. And what he wants is that there's that very weirdness to speak of their confidence. That as they demonstrate there are no first and second class among us, that then speaks to the world something of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are to be no second class citizens in the city of God. Now, there's so much in Ephesians that as we start this series, I've broken it down really into quite small portions. And we're not always going to follow sort of big stretches. Sometimes it's just going to be thoughts. And I want to dive straight in. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul is an apostle. Now, if anyone's entitled to sit on a front row, it's an apostle. But... He's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Apostle just means a person who's sent, and he's remembering that it's Christ who sent him. If he's on the front row, it's because Christ has put him there. It wasn't his choice to be sent. On the contrary, he was thrown down, literally, and then picked up and sent. It's interesting if you read the story in Acts of Paul's conversion, how little time there is spent on the conversion, as it were. What you get is simply a command. Uh, I am the Lord and you're going to be my witness. 
It's a matter of grace. It's something he didn't work for. He didn't particularly look for it. It is of Christ. Equally, though, it is a necessity. It is by the will of God. Of himself, Paul is strictly a back row man. But by the will of God, an apostle, front row. And before we go any further, I want to ask you a fully serious question, although it will sound odd, and I'll leave a space. Some of you will kind of go into the space, and others of you will go, oh, I don't know how long a space is going to last, so I'll try to remember to do it at home. But the question is this, do you know who you are by the will of God? Paul did. Do you know who you are by the will of God? You will be many things. You will play many roles. Perhaps you have many challenges to overcome. But what are you by the will of God? Perhaps you'll say, well, I'm nothing. Well, you know that that's not the case. If you really think that, then I have good news for you. This letter will make you something. And more than something, but you have to pay attention. Perhaps you feel... Everyone else is something, including the Apostle Paul, but I'm not. And I want to say that that is simply a perverse kind of pride. Don't you dare diminish the power of God to make you something by his will. Whether he's an apostle or not, Paul has one term for everyone by the will of God. And it's there in the second part of the first verse. Saints. Many of you will know what that means. It simply means the ones who are called to be holy. And holy simply means set apart to reflect God's character. With the emphasis on the set apart. The saints are simply those who have transferred over. From a kingdom of darkness, if you like, to the kingdom of light. And that is the only term that matters as far as Paul is concerned. If we are all saints, then we are all front row. Now already in verse 1, he said Christ twice, and it's coming again in verse 2. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, the words with which Mike opened the service. And if that's the case three times in two verses, and it's 15 times in the first 14 verses, then you know that this letter is going to be about Jesus Christ. Jesus, his proper name, who is the Christ, the anointed one. It's what it means, the Messiah. Now notice the little kind of segue from uh, verse 2 through to verse 3. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ becomes, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're already getting a hint. Christ and ourselves, we are in the same position because we both have God as Father. There's going to be a lot more on that later. And then this uh, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us 
in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Some kind of key terms that you might as well sort of tuck away if we're going to be in Ephesians for any length of time. The heavenly realms, first of all, it comes a number of times. Heaven, that sounds like a good thing. Heavenly realms, though, doesn't mean a good thing. It just means a, a place of spiritualities. It means the, ple- the realm that is behind what we see. So we're going to find out later on that there are uh, negative and evil powers in these heavenlies, as they're called. But that's a, a, a language that you just kind of register that one and then we can move on. Uh, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every blessing from the Spirit. That would sound weird, so we say spiritual blessing. But that's what it says. So already in verse 3, we've got a strongly Trinitarian reference. God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit. For he chose us in him, verse 4, before the creation of the world. These are Gentiles that he's concerned with. And they would come from a background in which they knew other gods. And in those, uh, in the stories of those gods, there would, there would be a, uh, a mythological story which would give rise to something happening in this world. But there is no sense in those other gods of a world before the creation. There's no going behind what Paul says here. He chose us in him Before the creation. And it's not just corporate. It is that. It does mean his people, yes. But it's us. He chose us in him. It's a plurality of sons. They're coming later. Now, we're going to spend some time looking at what are these blessings. Every spiritual blessing in Christ. If he says every spiritual blessing, it doesn't just mean the ones he's about to mention. He means all of them. Whatever they may be, whatever spiritual blessing you could think of, he means that too. But he does articulate some, some of them, quite a lot of them, and we're going to spend some time on that. Occasionally, only very occasionally, I meet believers who are very proud of their status as believers. God chose me. They're like donkey and Shrek, pick me, pick me, pick me. But more often, I meet those who feel they can't really have been chosen because they feel the very opposite of what it says in verse 4, holy and blameless. That gets in the way. I can't have been chosen because I'm not holy and blameless. Their sense of being second class, back row, runs so deep that they simply cannot get to the opening of verse 4 You were chosen. And in all likelihood, some of you are in that situation tonight. And the challenge for you tonight is to listen to verse 4. You are chosen. Accept the rank into which you are called chosen. Front row. There's a seat on the front row with your name on it. But there are no front row seats that don't also carry responsibility to be holy and blameless. That's not a burden, that's a blessing in itself. 
And some of this, I'm aware of, comes out of my pastoral responsibilities, but I meet those who, rather than live in the front row with its responsibilities, we are so alarmed by the responsibilities of living on the front row that we will avoid them even if it means giving up the promise of being a saint. And if that's you, I want to tell you it is not that Paul is encouraging second classes to become first classes. He's saying there is only one class. To avoid the responsibility, the only way to do it is you can't be a saint. In or out. Not more in, more out. In or out. You cannot live with a perverse pride that will not let God declare about you what he has done for you in Jesus. That amounts to a denial and he won't allow it. These then are some of the blessings. He chose us in Christ, in him, before the creation of the world. Well, where else are we going to want to be except chosen in Christ? We're going to repeat that uh, a little later and, and I'll say a little more then. But we are chosen in Christ before the creation of the world. Obviously, that is as absolute and certain as it is possible to be. You can't go behind it. It's established firm once forever. Holy and blameless in his sight. Again, in whose, who else's sight would matter? Holy, set apart, it's the same word as saints. Sanctified, we could say here. Holy is what God has done. Blameless is the effect that it has had. It has made us those that God can look at, chosen in Christ. And though you and I may pay attention to the sins that still blot uh, our character, God looks at us who are chosen in Christ and sees Christ, blameless, holy. In love, end of verse 4, he predestined us to be adopted. Well, uh, as I said, there are in this not so much units as particular thoughts. And I actually carved out uh, an element for next week uh, so that Nigel can pay attention to predestination. I'm not therefore going to pay attention to it much tonight. But predestined for what? To be adopted. And it strikes me as I was thinking about this that we don't probably grasp how different this would have been in the ancient world. Um, we have friends who adopted a uh, Korean girl. Now, in the UK, uh, when she went to school and she had parents that looked very different from her, she was definitely marked down as a second-class citizen, a second-class member of the life of the school and of the society around. Oh, you're adopted. It was obvious the racial characteristics were different. But of course, since they were part, it's quite a long time ago now, they were part of a, um, a movement of uh, adopting Korean children when those children themselves had no other option. 
So in the UK, where the adoption was worked out, this youngster looked like a second-class citizen. But in Korea, where she had come from, she was looked up to as someone who had made it, who has made it out of the mess uh, of the situation in which she found herself. Now we, because we think of the, the difficulties that adoption can arise out of, may say, oh, well, you're only adopted. We know we shouldn't, but sometimes that's the culture that we're part of. Completely different in the ancient world. Whether your parents had died or not, you could be adopted. It was a mechanism, not in the Hebrew world, but in the Roman world. It was a mechanism, obviously enough, of getting someone to become an heir. If you were childless, if you had a whole estate and you didn't, wasn't going to be an heir to it, you could take some favoured person and make them your heir. You would adopt them. So in the ancient world, to be adopted is as good as it gets. It means good stuff is going to happen to you. So when we're told he predestined us to be adopted as his sons, it's not a kind of awkwardness, a sort of, oh, poor God, he could only have one real son, so I suppose the only way we can manage is if we get to be adopted. It's not a sort of second-rate procedure. It is the very highest thing that God can do for us, that, that he should adopt us. And it is as his sons, not his daughters. Let me explain that. You could, in the ancient world, only inherit if you were male. So, of course, it's reasonable in our own day to think about the children of God, sons and daughters of God. But we mustn't play around with the text. Otherwise, we lose that sense that it's not about being a male child or a female child. It's about having the rights of inheritance because you've been given them in an adoption. So in love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons. We will inherit through Jesus Christ. And again, that's the where else would you want to be factor. It happens not to mark us out because we're special, but because it, uh, Christ is the one who is chosen as the Son, and we are chosen in him. In accordance, still verse 5, with his pleasure and will. It doesn't mean any more than it says. His pleasure, do we forget God's delight and enjoyment? of seeing his will work out. And his will, his determination and purpose, it shall be so. Well, all of that, so far, is about destiny from way, way back. And it happens to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. See, we cannot be chosen in isolation from Jesus Christ. Whatever we are, whatever we are by the will of God, to go back for a moment, we are that only in Christ. The choices of him first and of us in him. There's no shape to our choosing. There's no shape to our life that exists outside the shape that is Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is stuffed with references to God's love for his only son. And that is the love in which we live. Not a separate love. A love that we might feel anxious about. 
Does God love Jonathan? Does God love Janet? And they may wonder. But once they remember that we know God loves Jesus and that we are chosen in Jesus, then there is no doubt of his love. He cannot stop loving those in Christ any more than he can stop loving Christ himself. And then it goes on. Verse 7, in him we have redemption, oh, there's a shock. We've been adopted as God's own children in the heavenly realms through Christ. We have been set as God's joy and delight. And this has all been achieved through sticky, yucky, red blood. We have redemption through his blood. Isn't that extraordinary? We kind of know the story, and once we know the story, we say to ourselves, yeah, okay, well, that makes sense. But at one level, it doesn't make any sense at all. Other religions might have had heavenly places. Other religions might have had blood sacrifice. But only the Christian faith brings these extraordinary things together, chosen from before the creation, and actually redeemed by his blood, by a Not a decision made before there was time, but a one-moment decision made in time to put up with the cross. It's a redemption. It means a buying back from bondage and slavery. It's an astonishing leap from verse 6 to verse 7, from this enormous height to the utter depth. It's not before the creation, but it's one moment, redemption through his blood. And it's not a cultic or a ritual death. It achieves something, the forgiveness of sins. It's all part of God's rich provision in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. That's where I'm going to stop uh, tonight. Uh, Nigel will pick up. But all of that is what it means to be a saint in Christ. There's a lovely story. I confess I can't remember which book by C.S. Lewis it comes from. Um, I suspect it might be The Great Divorce. Someone may know it and tell me afterwards. Uh, Is that that, that, the one where there's the trip to hell, isn't it? Yeah. And there's a a lovely moment where um, the visitors are encountering these people in hell. And one of the um, people in, in this unusual, it's not a sort of burning hell, they're just wandering around a a neutral garden. One of the, the, the people is uh, standing there and going, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. And they say, well, no, no, you know, Christ has died for you. No, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. Until eventually the Christian who's on a visit loses their temper and say, well, whoever thought you were. If we say constantly to God, oh, I'm not worthy, we are insisting on our will being done instead of his. After all, whoever thought we were worthy. Forgiveness of sins is a joy and not a burden. If it's a burden, oh, I've sinned again, well, yes, you have, then you're in danger not from the sin of the again, whatever that may be, but from the sin of rejecting God's grace of supposing that you're not worthy. Actually, we know you're not worthy. We know I'm not worthy. None of us is worthy. We're doing this, we're here, because we were chosen from before the creation of the world. 
Before I finish, I want to say something to those of us who may be supposing ourselves actually third class. You haven't even got to second class yet. You know you're actually on the outside looking in. Well, I tell you, you can analyse the H2O until you're blue in the face. But you don't know what wet means until you jump in. That's how God designed it. God will not allow us a place of cool, neutral inquiry. He intends that we will only properly understand if we understand it from the inside. All we can say, if you feel entirely outside these blessings tonight, all we can say is that this is the witness of biblical authority to what it is supposed to be like. Sorry, what it is like and what it's supposed to feel like. It takes us higher than any earthly ambition will take us. It makes us with a process more serious than any self-improvement will make us. Chosen. You were chosen to be holy. And if you're feeling third class, that that's something you've never, ever come to terms with, then sign up for CE. Of course I'm going to say that. Why wouldn't you? It may take you out of your comfort zone. But most of us learn that we can cope being a little out of our comfort zone. Uh, But please don't think if you're willing to take that step, that there's a valid stopping place at second class. And those of you who are feeling second class are perhaps my main concern tonight. Fully solemnly, I want to say, there is no such category. Pastorally, I meet those who may look to the rest of the world a bit down. But sometimes I see great pride there. The pride that will hang on to a depressed assessment of ourselves, rather than give in, which is what it is, to the declaration that comes from outside, setting our rank as adopted children in the front row of glory, and setting before us our responsibility to live in that declaration that we are holy and blameless. That's a declaration. It's not a, at this point in the letter, it's not a, well, I'll, I'll make you chosen so long as you work for it. There is none of that. I want you to be holy and blameless and to make yourselves holy and blameless. We, uh, whoever thought we were worthy, whoever thought we could make ourselves holy. Paul is concerned here not to say, you must do this, but to set before us the great affirmations of what God has done, that lavish quality from all his wisdom and understanding. If we start to think what we must do, or what we must have done, then there's not only going to be second class, but there's going to be third class, and fourth class, and 75th class. And that's where some of us may feel. And if you insist on walking out of the door, insisting on feeling that, no one can stop you. But I want to put in front of you these affirmations of what God has done. And it is completely impossible, if you take those seriously, to see beyond one first-class row 
the saints, all of us. All whose sin has been redeemed, not one more than another, all upon whom the blessings of God in Christ have come, not more one more than another. Ephesians is written that we may all live together now, not in the future, in what God has already done. Let us not dare take our eyes off that truth. And if your eyes have never lifted even that high, and if you can be here tonight and say you have never known the blessing of adoption into Jesus Christ as God the Father's beloved son or daughter, then don't leave without praying tonight with the team. But let's pray now. I'll close uh, this moment with a prayer and then Simon will take our prayers forward. Lord God, we thank you for what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. A story that began before time itself, before the creation of the world. A story that took on thousands of years of a creation, that took on the, the, the moment of the birth of your Son into our world, his life, his declaration, his living out of what holy and blameless looks like, of what pleasure looks like in your purposes. And it's a story that took him to the cross and to our redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Lord, we can only bow before a story like that, And we ask that we may have a renewed confidence, not in anything that we do for you, but in what you have done for us in Jesus Christ to give us every spiritual blessing. Amen.